It is so good to be with you guys. I am back from vacation, and I'm excited. Who's excited to be in God's house today? Woo! I feel refreshed and revived, and that means you guys are in for a treat. Buckle your seatbelts, because I'm ready to preach uh, a message today. I hope that you are ready to hear one. If you're new with us, my name is Peter. I have the privilege of serving as the lead pastor, and, and we're just excited to have you joining us today. And uh, thank you for allowing my wife and I and our boys the opportunity to just disconnect and unplug for a little while, get some much-needed R&R. Uh, but man, I missed you guys, and there's no place I'd rather be than here with my home church. You know, we had two weeks off, and uh, the, the, our boys, while we were on vacation, actually crossed because they, they were sad to miss church. And so last Sunday, we actually got to attend as a family. It only happens once or twice a year where we get to come to church and not have any responsibilities and just receive uh, like all of you do every single week. And so it is so good to be back with you guys. And I just want to give a special shout out and say thank you to uh, Mark Rouse, the lead pastor of Epic Church Buffalo, a very dear friend of mine who filled in for me in week one. And then Pastor Beth Miller, our children's and family pastor, who knocked it out of the park last week uh, when she brought the message for week two of this series. Didn't she do a great job? Did you guys enjoy that? Awesome. We are in week three of a series called The Problem of God, which is based on this book right here, written by a former atheist named Mark Clark, who now pastors a growing church in Vancouver, Canada. And if you've not picked this book up, I would strongly encourage you to do so. It's a phenomenal book in which he addresses 10 of the biggest challenges or problems that people give, skeptics give, for why they don't believe in God. In this series, we're, we're tackling just a few of those 10 objections. And in week one... Mark, Pastor Mark kicked it off by talking about the problem of Jesus. Was Jesus a real person? And if he was, did he really die on a cross? And if he did, did he really rise from the dead? And we learned that there's actually some evidence to support that claim. Last week, as I said, Pastor Beth did a phenomenal job tackling the problem of science. And we learned that faith and science don't have to be perpetually at war with each other. That science can actually spark and stimulate our faith and lead us closer to God. Um, and if you missed either of those messages, I want to encourage you to listen to the podcast or check it out on YouTube. And if you're joining us online, uh, thank you for joining us. We hope this message blesses you as well. But today, what I want to do is start with a, a, a statement that Pastor Beth made in her message last week, a very foundational truth that is important for us to begin with, because we need to understand that everyone has a belief system. Everyone has a belief system. Not only do people of faith have a belief system, but atheists also have a belief system. They might say, you know, I believe that science explains why we got here or how we got here. Um, but some people would say, you know, I'm an agnostic. I'm not sure what to believe. Those are all belief systems in and of themselves. And what I'd like to do for those of you who are here today as skeptics or as seekers or as agnostics or atheists is to follow where the evidence leads, not just where you hope it leads. Follow where the evidence leads, not just where you hope it leads, because the truth of the matter is, some of us are only maybe two or three questions away from our whole worldview being completely dismantled. Like Christians would say, I believe Jesus is God. And someone would challenge them and say, well, how do you know that? Why do you believe that? Well, because the Bible tells me so. How do you know the Bible is true? The Bible's not true at all. And you're like, well, why? I don't know. And all of a sudden, your worldview begins to crumble and collapse. 
But the same is true for atheists as well. You might say, you know what? There's no intelligent design behind the universe. We're just here by chance. It's an evolutionary process. And, you know, that's how we got to be here, the Big Bang. And some might say, well, what caused the Big Bang? Well, I don't know. Well, and then all of a sudden, you're three questions away from your worldview beginning to collapse. So I want to encourage those of you who are here today with doubts to follow where the evidence leads, not just where you hope it leads. Because for some of you, the evidence has led you away from faith in God. But for many of us, as we're discovering in this series, there's quite a bit of evidence to lead people towards faith and towards Jesus. And the big question I'm going to attempt to tackle today is if God is all good and all powerful, then why is there evil and suffering? A huge topic that we could spend hours and days talking about and not exhaust all of the content that there is to, to discuss with this. And so I'm going to do my best in the next 30 minutes or so to give you um, what Mark Clark calls in the book the most glorious answer to the problem of evil and suffering. But this question, how many of you have asked that question before? If God is good, how is there evil and suffering? right? Question that mankind has been asking for thousands of years. Like if God is good, if God is all powerful, why does he allow things like the Holocaust to happen? Why do wars happen? And why is there genocide? And, and why are kids right now chained up in kennels waiting to be sold into the sex trade? Why is there cancer? Why do kids die of cancer? Why are babies born dead? Why are there terrorist attacks? You know, as the tail end of our vacation, we went to New York City and we visited the 9-11 memorial. It's the first time we had been, Kelly had been back there since she was actually in New York City when the terrorist attacks happened on 9-11. And we were explaining what our boys were seeing at the memorial and our oldest, Samuel, who's nine years old, asked the question, why would somebody do that? Even in my nine-year-old son's little heart, that question of why, why? Why do natural disasters claim thousands of lives? God, if you're good, then why the bad? And for some of you, this is your biggest obstacle to faith. This is why you're an agnostic or why you're an atheist, because you just can't wrap your head around the thought or the idea of a good and loving and just God when you see so much evil and suffering in the world. In fact, the late professor, apologist, and author, Ronald Nash, points this out when he says that every philosopher believes that the most serious challenge to theism, which is the belief in God, was and is and will continue to be the problem of evil. This sentiment was recently confirmed in a national poll that was taken in which people were asked, if you could ask God one question and have him answer you, what would it be? Now, I don't know about you, but I've got a lot of questions I'd love to ask God, some of them not so serious. When I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God, what's the deal with mosquitoes, God? Like, why? Like, what purpose do they serve? Was that an accident? Or another question might be like, why do all of the best foods that taste the best have to be bad for me and cause me to gain weight? Like, why? What's the deal with that, God? Like pizza and ice cream and Paula's donuts. Hello, somebody. Like, why does that have to be bad for me? But those are some not so serious questions, but that poll was taken in which people were asked, if you could ask God one question and have him answer you, what would it be? Do you know what the most common response to the question was? Why is there evil and suffering? The most popular answer to that question. 
For many people, there's just far too much pain and suffering in the world for the idea of a loving and just God to exist, to be taken seriously. They just can't reconcile that in their heads. This problem is actually referred to as the rock of atheism. Atheism's strongest argument for the non-existence of God is the existence of evil and suffering. If God is good, where did evil come from? Did he create it? And if he's all powerful, why doesn't he prevent it? And since he doesn't prevent it, does that mean he can't? Or maybe it means that he's just not real. It's an age old question that mankind has been asking for thousands of years. In fact, going back to 300 BC, 2300 years ago, the Roman philosopher Epicurus said this, is God willing to prevent evil, but not able? Then he is not omnipotent. He's not all powerful. Is he able, but not willing? Then he's malevolent. He's mean. Is he both able and willing? Then whence cometh evil? Where does evil come from? Why does it exist? Is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? And modern philosophers continue to ask these questions to this very day. It's an age-old question, but it's not just an age-old question. It's also a biblical question. Hundreds of examples from cover to cover in the Bible of people who have questioned God's existence, his, his care for them when they're in the midst of hardship. There are 20 different Psalms that ask the question, how long, God, until you answer me? How long must I suffer? The book of Job, 40-some chapters of like just pain and misery and suffering. The book of Lamentations is, is just a huge long prayer of crying out to God for the pain and suffering that the nation of Israel was going through. From Genesis to Revelation, the whole Bible has examples of injustice and suffering. It doesn't avoid the question like many world religions do. It faces it head on. But before we get to that, I want to acknowledge that not only is the problem of evil and suffering an age-old question, and not only is it a biblical question, it's also a personal question as well. You see, in the first couple weeks of this series, the topics that we've covered have been primarily philosophical in nature, kind of academic. But the problem of evil and suffering, while it's a fascinating intellectual question, is not just academic. It's personal. It's personal because pain is personal. And for some of you, the reason you're interested in this question isn't academic. It goes back to your childhood. You can't wrap your head around the thought of a loving God that's called father when your earthly father was cruel and mean and harsh, abusive, maybe an alcoholic, maybe absent, or maybe you wish you had a dad, but he died when you were young and you've never gotten over the hurt of that and you've never forgiven God for it. When I looked into the casket of my father who passed away when he was 46 years old, when I was 21, a month before he was supposed to officiate my wedding, I asked that question, why God, it's not supposed to be this way. And maybe you've lost both of your parents and you're like, seriously, you're gonna try to tell me God's good? Why did he allow this to happen? For others of you, maybe it's loss. Your life has just been a series of loss after loss, maybe financial loss, job loss after job loss. Maybe it's relationships. You loved him or you loved her and she didn't love you back or he decided to walk out after 20 years of marriage. 
Maybe you've lost children, which I've been told is the most intense emotional pain that a person can ever experience, that no parent should ever have to bury their child. Maybe it's multiple miscarriages. Or maybe you know someone that has had these objections. The first funeral I ever officiated happened a couple months after I entered vocational ministry. We moved to Columbus, Ohio in October of 2012. And a couple months later, we got a call from a member of our church whose grandson had passed away in a single car accident. And so here I am, as green as green can be, brand new to the ministry. And I've got to officiate the funeral of a 20-year-old kid who died in a single car accident. And I remember sitting in a room with the family and the parents like at a complete loss for what to say and how to like offer some kind of hope to these parents who are grappling and wrestling with this question of why would God take our only child? Another funeral I did several months later was for a girl in our church who was in her early or mid-20s who had struggled for her whole life with a congenital heart defect. And she had been on the list for a heart transplant. She finally got the call that she was gonna be able to receive a heart and be able to live a normal life. And so she went to Pittsburgh to have the transplant done. And at first it looked very promising as she began to recover, the body was receiving it well until she developed an infection that the doctors couldn't get under control. And when I was called and told that she was taking a turn for the worse, I jumped in the car and drove to Pittsburgh a couple hours, made it there just in time, was in the hospital room with the family when Shelby breathed her last. And it's in moments like that where you just have to ask, like, where is God in all of that? Where's God? Pain is personal. And you know what I've discovered about pain? Often our personal pain motivates our private convictions. In other words, the pain that we experience from different events in our life shapes our convictions, including our beliefs in the existence or non-existence of God. So it's not just the head, it's also the heart. It's this life that we're trying to live that keeps getting interrupted by sorrow after sorrow, loss after loss, heartache after heartache, news story after news story after illness, after diagnosis and death and destruction, sometimes our personal pain motivates our private conviction. So I just would ask you guys to be honest with yourselves here this morning. Has your personal pain caused you to not believe in God? And if so, I wanna challenge you to be to go on this journey with me today as we engage the head and the heart, despite the fact that it might bring up some pain in you, as we attempt to answer this age-old question of where do evil and suffering come from? Now, there have certainly been many attempts to answer this question over the centuries, and I'm gonna try and share with you the most satisfying answer that I have found, and I realize that it won't be satisfying to all of you, and that's okay. And if you're here today as a seeker, I just wanna say I'm proud of you. Like, I recognize what a challenge it is Uh, to enter the doors of a church knowing that the majority of people there believe something that you don't believe. And so we try to create an environment here where it's okay to, you can belong here before you believe. You can come with your doubts and your questions as you explore this issue of faith. 
But before I share the Christian worldview to this question, I think it's important for us all to understand that every worldview, every belief system has to answer the question of evil and suffering. You can't shrug it away. You can't ignore it. Every single person has to wrestle this question to the ground and see if your worldview holds up under the weight of it. And so I wanna give you just a couple of different ways that different world religions and different worldviews have attempted to answer this question of the problem of evil and suffering. So Buddhism, for example, a very popular Eastern religion, would say that you overcome or transcend suffering through detachment. That if you kill desire, you'll no longer long for anything, and that's when you achieve nirvana, this state of enlightenment, when you detach from everything which sounds great if you're talking about a car or a house or a material possession, if you can detach from the need to you know, always crave more, but that also applies to people and relationships that you only achieve nirvana when you detach from all desire to accomplish anything in life, don't have any dreams or aspirations or, or have meaningful relationships, you just detach. So that's what Buddhism would say. Islam is a, one of the few world monotheistic religions, second largest religion in the world today, fast growing, very multifaceted, and there are certainly different strands of Islam, but a dominant theme in all of the strands is this idea that suffering is either the painful result of sin or wrongdoing, or it's a test. And you overcome suffering by submitting to Allah, Islam's God, who caused the suffering. Muslims believe that God causes the suffering And they find peace by detaching themselves from the effects of that suffering because he's either, you know, punishing the unbeliever or testing to see who is truly righteous. And so they submit to Allah's will because he caused it. And so if they can just detach from the effects of it, then they'll find peace. So that would be Islam's worldview of suffering. Hinduism, on the other hand, says that suffering is the result of karma, this impersonal force that works just like the laws of physics, causing good things or bad things to happen based on what was done in a previous life. And there are certainly some some Western thoughts or sayings that have been kind of adopted or adapted from karma. Like, have you ever heard the saying, what goes around comes around? That's a very karma-esque saying, or you're getting what you deserve. But there's a very negative side to karma as well. Because karma would say that you can't interfere with someone's suffering. You can't help relieve someone's suffering because they're getting what they deserve. They're suffering because of what they had done in a previous life. And if you interfere or help them and improve their condition, then they'll have to suffer again in the next life because they're suffering in this life because of what they did in a previous life. And so try to explain that to someone who was suffering at the hands of an abuser that I can't help you because you're getting what you deserve. That's what karma would say. That's what Hinduism believes. Mark Clark in his book gave an example of a time when he was in India and there was a pregnant woman begging on the side of the road and he was about to give her money and the, the people that he was with said, no, 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 you can't, you can't give her money. As you know, India is a caste system in Hinduism and they said, like, if you help her, she'll have to suffer again in the next life. How about New Age philosophy? New Age believes that we all have the divine in us, that we're all a part of this cosmic collective consciousness, 
that denies the very existence of evil or suffering, that it's all Maya, as they call it, or it's just an illusion, that you just have to think positive because positive thinking denies a negative reality. That's what New Age believes. And sadly, this denial of evil and suffering as a reality has crept its way into mainstream Christianity. In the book, Mark gives an example of a friend who had a husband that was dying of cancer and the woman's friend refused to go and visit her friend's husband in the hospital because doing so would acknowledge or give power to this false sickness and that she wouldn't even say the word cancer because it would give it power. And so we just got to speak positive. We got to speak life. We can't acknowledge that he actually has cancer. And this way of thinking is not biblical. Like the Bible acknowledges that evil and suffering are very real, so real that God had to send Jesus to deal with it firsthand. So that's new age philosophy. What about naturalism or evolutionary theory, which is what the majority of atheists would ascribe to? Even naturalism has to explain the existence of apparent evil and suffering. They say that because suffering exists, God can't exist, certainly not a good God. They say that there is no intelligent design behind the universe, that we are here by choice or by chance, the byproduct of an evolutionary process that began with some cosmic explosion millions of years ago, and we've all evolved from a single-cell organism that life has no meaning or purpose and therefore suffering has no meaning or purpose. It is just the product of the evolutionary process that we are a part of. And naturalism would add that you can add to suffering if it helps ensure your survival because it's survival of the fittest. So if you have to suffer, if I have to make you suffer to ensure that I have a better chance of survival, tough luck, so be it. Survival of the fittest. Atheists would say that morality is simply a construct, the result of an evolutionary process that's been kind of hardwired into our brain circuitry over thousands of years based on what was best for society at the time to survive in their environment. That right and wrong, good and evil are simply artifacts of what our ancestors kind of invented and were forced to believe in order to survive. That's how they would explain our moral sense, if you will. In 1997, there was an 18-year-old girl named Melissa Drexler who somehow hid it from the majority of her friends and family that she was pregnant. And she went to her high school prom, nine months pregnant, And while she was there, went into labor. She went to the bathroom, gave birth to the baby, cut the umbilical cord, strangled the baby to death, threw the baby in the garbage can, and then went back to the dance floor and danced the night away with her friends. Shortly after the story became news, MIT psychologist and evolutionary theorist Steven Pinker wrote an article in the New York Times entitled, Why They Kill Their Newborns, in which he tried to explain why Melissa did what she did from an evolutionary, naturalistic viewpoint. 
Now, what I'm about to share with you is shocking, disturbing, and will likely horrify most of you. But I'm simply trying to give you a defense of naturalism from someone who believes in naturalism. This is where this worldview logically leads. In it, he wrote that we just have to understand that girls like Melissa are simply descendants of women who are wired to make difficult decisions for survival. He explained that what she did was just part of our biological design when survival is at risk. He wrote, and I quote, it's hard to maintain that neonaticide or the killing of babies is an illness because people were in an uproar saying she has to be mentally ill. She's sick to have done this. He's saying, no, it's hard to say that it's an illness. It's not an illness when we learn that it's been practiced and accepted in most cultures throughout history. And he's not wrong there. When you look at history, there's tons of examples of cultures that have practiced and accepted the killing of babies when it was inconvenient or when the child was unwanted. He goes on to say that a capacity for neonaticide is built into the biological design of our parental emotions. He says if a newborn is sickly or if its survival is not promising, they may cut their losses and favor the healthiest in the litter or just try again later on. He basically argued that she was simply acting on her biological impulses that fueled her instinct to survive, realizing that she wasn't emotionally ready to bring a child into this world. Therefore, the baby's survival was in jeopardy and she made the decision that she needed to to ensure her own survival. Do you see where a godless evolutionary worldview can lead? If we are just, listen, if we're just the product of evolutionary chance, then killing babies for the emotional well-being of parents shouldn't bother you. But it does. Why is that so disturbing to so many people? Why do we get upset when we see that and when we hear that? It's because we are moral creatures. But how do moral creatures evolve from nothing? That's the question. Maybe it's because we didn't evolve from nothing. Maybe that is evidence of the fingerprint of God in who we are and who we were created to be, made in the image of a moral God who gave us a conscience, a moral sense to know right and wrong, good and evil. In fact, many of the moral values that our society and culture accepts today are directly opposite of what would have developed if it was all about survival of the fittest. So there's a strong argument to be made that suffering can actually be an argument for the existence of God, not against the existence of God. The fact that something rises up in us when we see cruelty, when we see injustice, when we see the powerful taking advantage of the weak is there because we are made in his image. And and it says in Ecclesiastes 3.11 that he's put eternity in our hearts. There's something in us because we're made in his image that gets upset by that because he is upset by that. So if those are a few of the explanations for the question of evil and suffering in the world. What does Christianity say? Well, first of all, Christians would say that the source of all evil stems primarily from the existence of the devil. 
Satan, Lucifer, whatever you want to call him. And I know that if you're here today as an atheist, that you don't believe in God and therefore you don't believe in a devil either. But I'm just telling you what Christians believe, that the devil is a fallen angel who's created by God, kicked out of heaven by God because of pride, and he hates God now. And his mission is to steal, kill, and destroy everything that matters to God. And that's really the source of all evil. We talked about him a lot in our last series. But it's more complicated than just it's the devil. You see, evil and suffering also come from the paradox that freedom creates. You see, Christians believe that God created mankind with free will. And the way that you'll best be able to understand this or that I can explain it to you is if you think about your relationships. See, at the center, at the heart of Christianity, and I think at the heart of the very human experience is this thing we call love. And everyone values love. Atheists value love when you think about your relationships. Agnostics value love. Other world religions value love. Everyone values love. But think about how love works. Love only works if it's freely given. How many of you are parents here today? Good number of you. Think about your kids all right, how many of you, when your kids were little and they were arguing, tried to get your kids to make up by saying, all right, you guys talk it out. Now you apologize. Now you say you love him, right? We do this all the time. Our kids, our boys are eight and nine. They fight constantly. I feel like it just, that's all it is, is just refereeing arguments. And so my wife especially would be like, okay, hug it out, hug it out. Now say you love him. I love you. <laughs> I'm sorry. What is, it doesn't work, right? Why? What is that? Because forced love is not love at all by definition. Love only works if it's freely and voluntarily given and received. If you're free to love, then you're also free to not love. You're free to hate. If you're free to do good, you're also free to do evil. And we know this to be true. We're going to talk more about this next week when I tackle the problem of hypocrisy. We all have the capacity to do good and we all have the capacity to do evil. Even in an atheistic or agnostic worldview, this is how your relationships work, that you, you don't want robots, you don't want people being forced to pledge their allegiance to you. You want people to voluntarily, willingly give you their affection and their love. Love isn't love unless it's freely given and this is true in our relationship with God too. When God created man, he desired one thing above all else, and that was relationship with people. But he had to give us free will for it to be real love. He wanted us to choose to love him because he first loved us. And in the Garden of Eden, in the beginning, Scripture tells us that with free will, man chose to disobey God, and that's when sin entered the picture and sin destroyed everything. God is not the author of evil. He gave us free will and when sin entered the picture, it ruined God's perfect design. It's why our bodies break down. It's why people do terrible things. It's why life is always a struggle. Sin messes things up and it spreads. And that's why Paul wrote in Romans 5, 12, therefore just as sin entered the world through one man 
and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. In other words, sin causes brokenness within us and amongst us. And we can see its evidence all around us. So if every worldview has to answer the question of evil and suffering, what makes Christianity unique in the marketplace of ideas is this truth that Jesus answered suffering by embracing it. God saw the suffering of mankind and sent his son as a man to experience it firsthand and deal with its source, which is sin. John said that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil and he would do so by suffering. 700 years before Jesus, the prophet Isaiah wrote about this in Isaiah chapter 53. Listen to how perfectly this describes Jesus, even though it was written 700 years before Jesus was born. He says, yet it was our weakness that he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. So when you say, God, you don't understand what I'm going through. Yes, he does. Because it was our weakness and our sorrows that he carried. He experienced it firsthand. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord has laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly. Yet he never said a word. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led astray. No one led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal and was put in a rich man's grave. So what did God do with suffering? He sent Jesus who lived and died and suffered. Jesus answered suffering by embracing it. But why? That's the question, right? We all wanna know the reason why we suffer, why we struggle. And I just, I'm gonna give you three quick thoughts and these are certainly not exhaustive, but just some ideas that I wrote down for you to consider. And the first is that sometimes you succeed not in spite of your suffering, but because of it. Malcolm Gladwell calls it the advantage of disadvantage. When you look at the number of successful people in this world who are successful because of the struggles and the suffering that they had to overcome, Joseph is an example of this. In the book of Genesis, we see that he was sold into slavery by his brothers, taken to Egypt, put into prison, would eventually become powerful in the government of Egypt, which would position him to save his family from the brink of starvation and ultimately the future nation of Israel. It's because of his suffering that he succeeded And it's Joseph that gives us one of the most powerful truths about suffering in the Bible when he says in Genesis 50 verse 20 that you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. So sometimes we succeed not in spite of our suffering, but because of it. Another reason for suffering is that sometimes it strengthens us. Suffering strengthens us. That's what Paul was saying in Romans 5, 3 when he said we also glory in our sufferings. Why? because we know that suffering produces perseverance. And we know this to be true. When you've got to struggle and suffer through something, it strengthens you. It gives you perseverance, and perseverance gives you strength of character, and character 
produces hope. So suffering strengthens us. And thirdly, sometimes suffering brings about a greater good. And we can't always see the good that can come when we're in the midst of the suffering. We just want out of the suffering. God could have destroyed Adam and Eve when they sinned and started all over, but he didn't. Instead, in his wisdom, he allowed the evil and suffering that ensued to exist because he wanted the greater good. He initiated a plan of redemption and salvation that would culminate at the cross, which is where we see the most perfect picture of this truth. The cross, an instrument of torture intended to inflict suffering on its victims, on which Jesus hung, would be the greatest demonstration of good and love that the world has ever seen as God turned human evil into our redemption and salvation. Sometimes suffering brings about a greater good. You know, in every other religion, God or the gods remain aloof and distant, but the God we see in Christianity experienced human pain and suffering firsthand. He suffered with us and he suffered for us. Why? Because the God who embraced suffering wants to embrace you. That's why. Because the God who embraced suffering wants to embrace you. He knows the pain you've experienced. He knows the suffering that you've endured. He embraced suffering and he defeated evil. He embraced suffering when he died on the cross for our sins and he defeated evil when he rose from the dead three days later. And the God who embraced suffering longs to embrace you. He wants to restore what sin has destroyed. He wants to fix what sin has broken. He wants his victory to be your victory. This chapter in the book ends with a quote from one of my favorite movies, The Two Towers, which is the second movie in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And I'm gonna end with the same quote. When Samwise Gamgee, who is the friend of Frodo Baggins, the main character in the movie, is trying to encourage his friend Frodo to keep pressing on to Mount Doom despite all of the hardship and the suffering that they've endured. And here's what he says. He says, it's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered. Full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad had happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it will shine out the clear. That's the great hope that Christianity offers to everyone. Then even when we can't understand the reason for our suffering, that Jesus offers us the redemption of our suffering, that one day he will wipe away all evil, all suffering, all pain, all sickness. He'll wipe away every tear from our eye. But first, he wants to do a work in your life because the God who embraced suffering wants to embrace you. And if you'll let him, if you'll surrender your life to him, then what Paul wrote in Romans 8, 18 will be true for you when he says, I consider that our present sufferings aren't even worth comparing to the eternal glory that will be revealed in us. That is the hope of Christianity. Heavenly Father, I just come before you grateful that you answered suffering by embracing it. 
that we don't have a God who is not able to relate with us in our sorrow and in our suffering. Lord, you became one of us. You experienced the the limitations and the frailty of this human experience, and you allowed the evil and cruelty of your creation to be inflicted upon you so that we could be restored to relationship with you. And so God, for those who are here today and our believers and our followers of Jesus, but are in a season of suffering and pain and hardship, God, would you give them the perspective to know, Lord, that you are with them in the midst of it and you offer them the promise of of the redemption of their suffering. Lord, may you use it to produce perseverance. Lord, would you help them to see a good that you're gonna bring about as a result of it. And Lord, this morning, for those who might be here today as the invited guest of someone who brought them here knowing what we would be talking about, whose personal pain has motivated their conviction to believe that God cannot possibly be real. But this morning, they're feeling something in your heart. Maybe you're here today and and, and you've never acknowledged that there is a God, but there's something inside of you that's wondering if maybe, just maybe, that This God is real and that's why Jesus came to take our sorrow and our sickness and our suffering upon himself to pay the price for our sins, which is what put him on that cross. And to know that you could be restored to a relationship with him today by simply acknowledging that Jesus is the son of God, that he died for our sins and rose again. You could be adopted into the family of God and have this hope, have this promise of an eternity with him where he will redeem it all and wipe away all the sin, all the suffering, all the shame, all the sickness. If that's you here today and you're ready to take a step towards Jesus, receive his forgiveness today, it doesn't mean your suffering will go away. It just means you'll have the God of the universe in it with you as his spirit comes to live inside of you. If that's you here today and you want to start a relationship with Jesus today, will you just lift your head, hand with all heads bowed and eyes closed? Is there anybody here today that wants to receive God's free gift of forgiveness and have the hope of eternity with him? God, we just thank you for what you're doing in our church. And Lord, I pray that you would continue to just make yourself real to those who have struggled to believe that you are real. Would you draw them No man comes to the Father unless the Spirit draws him. So would your Holy Spirit continue to convict and woo and draw? Lord, would you help them to know that you want to embrace them, that you want to welcome them home as a son and as a daughter of the King? God, we love you. Lord, we thank you for being a God who embraced suffering and embraces us. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.